0: Hello and welcome. This month is Norsebember, and I really hope you get a chance to check out all things Norse. I'm talking with Stephen T. Dunn. He has a master's in history, runs a tea shop, and also owns the educational website Fjorns Hall. I would like to add a trigger warning. Stephen does briefly mention abuse, so please be aware of this. As you know, I love interviewing scholars, students, academics, amateurs, podcasters, website administrators. Their passion for the topic shines through and is very inspiring. And you might have noticed that not all the topics here are Canadian, but I am. I'm Rosie, I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now it's time to jump into some Norsevember history, eh? Today, I'm talking with Stephen, and I'm very excited to have him here. He is the owner of the website Fjorns Hall, and if you have not checked it out, you absolutely have to. So thank you so much for being here, Stephen.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor.
0: Oh, thank you. I guess, can you present your topic? I think a lot of people are interested in knowing what you're going to talk about today.
1: All right. So I'm going to be talking about my master's thesis that I did last year, and I finished it. The title of it is Weaponizing Ordinary Objects, Women, Masculine Performance, and the Anxieties of Men in Medieval Iceland. So basically in that work, I look at the experience of women in saga literature through the perspective of the objects that are mentioned and highlighted in some of the texts. The main argument I'm trying to make in that is that women could use these ordinary objects that was associated with their domain, even legally, to perform like men would. And at one point that was acceptable, but when you pay attention to the sources chronologically, that attitude starts to change and there's a shift to where that becomes less appropriate. So I spend the thesis looking at that and how it changed over time based on the literature that we have that focuses on those things.
0: Excellent. Okay, so we're talking about medieval times. So what is sort of the timeline that you will be looking at in this episode?
1: For the most part, the sources themselves come from the early 13th century to the early 15th century but they concern times before that from like the 9th 10th and even 11th centuries so it's a bit of a wish-washy period that we're talking about mostly the 13th and 15th centuries between that range
0: and the sources that you just mentioned what are the, some of these sources are they written are they oral how do we know about them
1: so the, when I say saga literature, it, it kind of vaguely refers to a large body of different genres. But when I'm talking about it, it's mostly a genre frequently called the family sagas or the sagas of Icelanders in English. Um, these sagas, there's generally a belief that they were orally told before they were written down. But we don't have them written down until the 12th, 13th and later centuries So as historians, the way we treat them is usually the period that they were written. So in this case, I usually just treat them from the 12th century. But these texts usually concern the social complexities of Icelandic society. Using the past as an example, usually they tell the stories of their ancestors, but a lot of it is still connected to present concerns because it was written down later. So the forms that we have them in, might have been very different from the oral forms that existed earlier in the Viking Age, which is far more popular. But uh, because of because we only have them as they are written later, then we have to consider
0: them in that time period instead. Okay, so we're looking at some really old sources for some of these texts. What were the main ones that you were focusing on for your thesis?
1: Uh, I've focused on three in particular, the Saga of the People of laxerdal which was Probably the the manuscript that we have comes from the early, or uh, we believe it came from the early 13th century. I also focus on Njal's saga, or the saga of Bernt Njal, which is the late 13th century. And then I also talk, to a less extent, about a saga called Viglund's saga, which is from the early 15th century. But of course, all these dates are a little fraught with um, guesstimating, obviously educated guesses, but we're not exactly sure when. They were first written. Sometimes scholars go off of the manuscript dates, but even that we don't necessarily know for sure. But uh, it's generally safe or uh, agreed upon in the, amongst the scholarship that uh, it's those periods.
0: Okay, so you're talking about objects and weaponizing objects. So did you want to start maybe at the beginning of where you started when you looked into this?
1: Well, um, it kind of started off with a seminar called Material Culture or material matters, it was the pun that we used. It was mostly applying the theory of looking at objects, like looking at them and looking at the context surrounding them rather than looking at the big players, for example, the people. But rather, we looked at how people interacted with the objects, so using the ob- the object itself as the starting point and trying to figure out how people interact with them, why they interact with them in certain ways, and the cultural meanings that people associate with those objects. So I... um talked to one of my advisors, the one who got me into this Viking uh, stuff to begin with as an undergrad, Dr. Jennifer Dukes Knight. And we talked about Njal's saga. And there's a scene where cheese becomes the central part of a feud that breaks out in, one of, in the saga. So she steals a piece of cheese from her neighbor. And the fact that she steals that it becomes a big deal in the saga. So I applied that theory to that. And it kind of became the crux for the master's thesis as I expanded upon it by looking at other sources
0: in other classes and
1: growing it into what it is now.
0: So you started with cheese, yes. essentially. <laughs> That's a great place to start. Why not? And how did that develop? So can you give us some ideas of what, you know, some of your points were?
1: Yeah. So when it comes to the cheese example, I started looking into how cheese was produced in medieval ice and who produced it. And basically, who is mostly in charge of those objects or associated with those objects? So, when I dug into the law codes and even checked various different sagas, cheese is almost always mentioned with women, and dairy work is also mentioned with women. Even the law codes specifically say that that is, their, that is one of the duties that they have to do, and it's one of the things that they're in charge of. So, when I saw that the woman's name is Hallgard, and she has a really bad rep in the saga literature, and I saw her steal the cheese. I decided to look at it from the perspective of the cheese. So what is the significance of a woman using cheese to start a feud, for example? So I started looking into the implications of that. So it's an object that she had good control over because it's something she made. It's something she would do. Or in this case, she didn't make it because she stole it. But it's still part of that realm of women to not get too lost in the details. Um, When she steals the cheese, it was during a famine when her husband already tried to go to the neighbor who she stole the cheese from to get help. And he refused and challenged her husband, Gunnar, to a something called raun, which is a specific type of theft where a man challenges another man to steal it. And if, you, if that man can steal it from you, essentially take it by force, then they gain honor from the exchange. It's kind of a power play. And basically what Halger did using the cheese was to do that exact thing to do wrong, except without a sword, she used the cheese. And of course, the author presents it underhandedly and says, oh, she resulted to theft, which was in the Icelandic legal code. And even Saga's theft was a very unmasculine thing to use the gendered terms, but it was a dishonorable thing. You would not gain honor from that. So the author was trying to code it as bad, but she still used this object to do something that would normally have been praiseworthy." And uh, the conclusion I got from that, to skip over some of the details, I don't want to get too lost in that, is that the author was aware that women could use their objects to do masculine things, and it created an anxiety among men who were worried that women were going to act like men when they were trying to transition Iceland to more of a continental model, so to speak, where there were more rigorous gender boundaries. A lot of the important theories to keep in mind for this is one that uh, Carol Clover Uh, Came up with or did in her article about gender in the medieval north, which is that it was a very flexible scale. So that's something I had to keep in mind while looking at the cheese. So, like, it was more about how you acted in society, if you were the passive role or the active role. So you can see that with the cheese, she took an active role, which would have been praised in the older version of society. But because the saga was at a time of great change in the late 13th century, it suggests a lot more about how society viewed her using those objects for that kind of thing, but also that women could actually do that and that men were worried about it.
0: So you looked at cheese. Yeah. I'm guessing that there's other objects, that there were other interactions with women that could support some of your theories. What were some of the objects that were linked to the women?
1: So clothes is another big one. And I mostly focused on that for the earlier chapters because the other saga I looked at, which is generally regarded to be earlier than Yal saga, the saga of the people of Lakshadal, that one features women using clothes in a variety of ways to kind of get back at men or essentially to perform those masculine roles and take honor from them. So there's a scene, for example, where Gudrun, so basically the protagonist of the saga, uses a shirt to get back at a man who slapped her. So she cuts a shirt that The neck is so low that it shows his nipples, which was apparently a no-no in medieval Iceland because it referenced cross-dressing, which in the Icelandic legal code was a no-no. But she basically did that intentionally to make him look like he was cross-dressing and used the shirt that she made to bring him dishonor after he slapped her. So she used those clothes as a way of basically feuding with her own husband and taking honor from him. And there's also a later part in that saga where a woman named Breaches Aud uh, wears pants and uses those pants to ride on a horse and a, and uh, take vengeance for her family when her brothers refuse to do so. So she literally wears men's clothing to do a male deed, which she slashed the guy's nipples with a sword, obviously a demasculizing kind of uh, act. And she actually gets praised for it in this saga. And the same thing was true for Gudrun to an extent. She did not get punished as much as Holger did in Yal saga, So the saga author is praising her actions because it was behavior in the earlier period of Iceland, at least that's what I argue, that was more acceptable even of women, but that as Njal's saga comes out and later sagas start coming out, they start to contradict that behavior and say, no, this is a bad thing, even though women could use clothes and cheese in other sagas and get praised for it.
0: So we're looking at these different objects and they seem to be creating a lot of feuds. So what other examples do you have where objects and maybe feuds or other stories would combine together?
1: Well, um, there's some cases where clothes don't even have to start a feud. But the point that I really wanted to emphasize was that women could, or society knew the symbolic value of clothes and could use them either in feud or in love. Because in the Gisli saga where there was a case of someone wanting to make a shirt for a a man and her friend was like, oh, if you do that, it will suggest that you love him. So the act of making the clothes could convey a sense of love from the person who made them. Obviously, that's something I think people today can associate with something handcrafted, can, um, can bring that kind of emotion. But the use of ordinary objects that we would normally overlook can bear so much meaning that the text doesn't necessarily say outright. So that's one of the better cases I could think of. The later example, if if I could bring that up, is that a woman used wore man, men's clothing to avoid being raped. I know that I I don't know I'm not sure if we want to get into that too much because I know it's a touchy subject for people, but um, she used it to successfully avoid that and yet Because it's a later saga, there was anxiety around her doing that, because even though it was something that would have been praised in earlier sagas, the later audience felt in unease with women using objects for that purpose. So it was more of like, even though you could use and control those objects, it was less acceptable to perform certain tasks with them. I'm not sure if that gets to the bottom of your question, though.
0: Yeah, I think so. We've talked a little bit about how women were portrayed in some of these literatures. Do you have any other examples of how women were portrayed in literature in general?
1: So for the most part, women are portrayed negatively in a lot of saga literature. Uh, the one exception in this case would be the, the saga of the people of Laxerdal, which generally takes a very positive tone towards women. So much so that there is actually scholarship that we believe it may have been written by a woman although we don't know for sure. But the, it has a very unusual t- good treatment of women. So the saga, for example, starts off with a very famous historical figure from medieval license history, which is Aud the Deep-Minded. Though she sometimes is referred to as other names, like Un the Deep-Minded or uh, the Deeply Wealthy. So it starts off with her leaving Scotland because her family like p- power fell through and her family was killed, and she single-handedly saved her family's wealth and the rest of her household and took them to Iceland and became one of its first settlers, and uh, actually distributes land to other people as if she was like essentially a matriarch. But that's a role that usually was for men. So this saga spins it as a positive thing, and it's this very saga that is also showing women using objects in a positive way to behave as men would. Essentially, this whole saga, which is kind of contrary to most other literature, shows women doing what men are doing and it not being a problem. As if as if they're saying, you know, we have when they're alluding to their historical memory, they're saying women were like this and we still were fine, we don't need to change it. And one of the things I explore in this thesis, because of the closeness of the saga of the people of Laksodal and Yal Saga in time, one is the early thirteenth, one is the late thirteenth, it's that contrast beca- between the positive types of betrayal where women could take that leadership role as long as it was basically upholding Icelandic values and be praised for it, versus Njal's Saga, which takes the more traditional role of women as the leading men into feuds that they don't need to be a part of. Essentially, Holgerd became the uh, epitome of the woman who drags her husband into feud when the men are trying to leave that kind of behavior behind. So a lot of saga literature will show women as unnecessarily being aggressive or, um, insulting their man and shaming them into doing something violent rather than negotiating through the law. So in that sense, that's when the saga of the people of Oxidal is a bit of an exception, and it's a little difficult to use it as a source of, well, this is how things would have been or were, and things started to change after that. There's usually, basically, those two different ways that that women are generally treated in saga literature is either when, if they take a more passive role, they're usually not talked about poorly there are some sagas also that hardly even give women a character at all they're just a very flat kind of character that just stands in the background basically being the pretty wife and essentially lax saga or the saga of the people of laxadol was trying to counter that narrative even though the majority of saga literature shows women as aggressors and problem makers when men are trying to better themselves
0: that's really interesting and I guess you must have looked at some of these law codes. You've mentioned a few times some of these law codes. How were women involved in the law codes? Did they get to make laws or were they just subject to their rulings?
1: So as far as we know, they were not included in the legal proceedings. In fact, for the most part, they weren't even even allowed to attend assemblies, which was only allowed for free men to attend to. So they did in a lot of ways, even though it seems like they were able to behave as men as equals, some of the saga examples suggest they were able to, but in reality, they were using their ordinary objects that they made or were heavily associated with them to circumvent those disadvantages and to become a part of the process that's not necessarily legal, but the extra legal process that was inevitably a part of medieval Icelandic society because there wasn't a centralized power structure. So most laws had to be upheld by the family defending them themselves. So starting a feud, for example, and making sure that, compensation was paid, and whatnot. So women might engage in that extra legal process, but they were never a part of the laws themselves. The laws mention them a lot, but it's mostly, sometimes it's a reflection of common practices, and other times it's an attempt to force certain types of behavior. But of course, legal codes are always an ideal, a perfect version of what they wanted to happen. But one of the ways that we use saga literature is to see More, At least a glimpse more into the probable reality of what society really worked like, where basically some laws might have been ignored or more flexible. But unfortunately, they were not part of the actual lawmaking process.
0: And I guess the next question would be, how do we know what the law codes were? How do we have access to that these days?
1: Well, fortunately, around the late 12th century, they were recorded into a nice big manuscript for us. and that's usually what we go off of. There were later versions of the law codes as well, but the, the ones called the Graugas or the Grey Goose Laws, we're not sure why it's called that, but um, we use that as the, the general law code for the period that these sagas are talking about or when they were, most of them were written. Because um, these laws were in place until 1262 or so when they started to get reformed after they became part of the Norwegian crown. But yeah, they were written down in the late 12th century, so we fortunately have them. Before that, they existed orally. Someone called the law speaker would have to recite all of the law code orally from memory every time they assembled in their national assembly, which happened once a year.
0: So it seems as though our sources are pretty good on that front. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I guess you've also mentioned how there are possibilities that there are some male writers or female writers. There's some definite evidence that there are male writers, as you've mentioned, too. Do we know if the males had tendency to write about females a certain way?
1: Um, We're not sure. I mean, everything's, of course, wishy-washy when we don't even know who the author was or what their background was necessarily, though. There's a lot of scholarship, at least for Niel's saga, that I know of, entire books that are trying to get that just explore that saga and talk about who the author could have been. But in general, I would say... The unfortunate reality is probably most saga literature was by men, and that's probably one reason why the majority of saga literature is not necessarily positive to women, because they weren't necessarily from that perspective. I mean, one such theory for the saga of the people of Loxadol, if it wasn't at least written by a woman, there might have been a, uh, a woman relative who was heavily involved in the process, especially since that saga takes place in, a re- in the region where that famous settler, Al the Deep-Minded, settled. So that region has that story of settlement where women were important. And if I'm not mistaken, that is also where the wife of Snorri Sturluson's nephew lived. And she was very wealthy. um, And she may have been involved with that saga being written in the first place. But I'm not exactly sure about the details on that, though there are a couple scholarly works on that. Um, For the most part, we kind of have to work out of the context of the saga itself to figure out what kind of tone is being taken and who the focus is, usually because the focus is on the feuds and actions of free men, for the most part, we can assume that the audience and the authors writing those sagas were generally those free men who were involved in those feuds, who would have had the most personal exposure to that kind of lifestyle, because most women probably would not have been doing that, even if there are examples of women who were doing that. uh, They had a lot more disadvantages, unfortunately. And even though they were able to circumvent them, sometimes it was still the male audience that was dominant.
0: So if we consider that most likely these were all written by males, do we see how they portray women? Do we have ideas of how um, they view women interacting in the world, perhaps?
1: Yeah, so... I think this is when Njal's Saga comes into a really is a really good example because Hallgird, the one who stole the cheese, is one of those really nefarious examples of a woman who just can't stop killing her own husbands because she's she doesn't like them or they insult her or she's really quick to kindle up a feud when her husband is one of those men who says at one point in the saga he's like, "Am I less of a man because I do not like killing others?" So he's resisting that trend of men being that hyper feuding type. But his wife is dragging him in it. So in this case, it's an example of men writing about women as holding men back to those old values that used to be um, praiseworthy. But there are also examples that kind of praise women who stand along with their men. Like in Gisli's Saga, for example, I didn't write about it in the thesis, but Gisli's wife, Aud is basically fighting with him when he's uh, meeting his end. I don't want to give too many spoilers necessarily, but because she stands with him but doesn't take that central role away or doesn't drag him into unnecessary conflict, she's taken more positively. It's really complicated over the course of saga literature because there are so many different areas that these sagas took place in, and different people and different times even, and even different focuses. So it's hard to have that cohesive like what did men say about women? But for the most part, it's I think the example in Yal Saga is a good one for the unfortunate typical tone that we get. Because there's another saga that is part of the big Vinland Sagas when the, the Norse went to North America, and Freydis, Eric's daughter, is notorious for being very murderous and killing several people just so she can kind of get her way. And it's unfortunately that negative betrayal that sometimes has the louder voice in saga literature. But one of the reasons I looked into these objects is to kind of understand the reality a bit more. Like, why are they portrayed this way? And, like, what was the truth behind it? Like, were they really able to do these things? Or was it really as bad as uh, they make it out to be? Or was there behavior that they were doing that they were opposed to in, in the time that they, were, they were writing the sagas? So trying to understand why they're criticizing that behavior was something I really wanted to explore with the thesis.
0: And there's always a lot of talk about shield maidens. I'm sure you've heard a lot about this. So do we have examples of women using objects for uh, fighting? I mean, you've mentioned a little bit about one story, but do you have more examples of that?
1: Yes. um, In some more mythological texts or the sagas about legends from before the Viking Age, we do get a lot of those shield maiden types, like uh, Brynhild in Saga. Or even the popular uh, Lathgurtha in Ragnar's saga, even though she, she doesn't play as big of a role in the saga itself. But in mythological texts, even Freya, for example, the goddess Freya, is often portrayed as that warrior woman. And we do have some archaeological evidence that may suggest warrior women, like the Burka grave, that's pretty famous um, because it's a woman buried with a lot of weapons and uh, warrior elite items. Of course, Burial items say a lot about the people who buried a person, not necessarily what about the person themselves, but we do have a lot of evidence between the mythological texts, even some archaeological evidence, and some of the examples that are less extravagant, perhaps, that show women behaving like men would. And I would say that warrior women would be the most extreme example, and if you look at, the reason I look at ordinary objects is to show that the average women may not have been warriors, but they could still be brave and be aggressive and you know look after their family actively rather than passively they didn't need to necessarily carry a sword to do so but it still gives lends credibility to the potential for some women to go as far as being warriors but it's hard to find concrete satisfying evidence for that especially when a lot of people resist taking that and uh taking that to
0: heart so the fascination with shield maidens just doesn't stop really Have you heard of theories of why this is so popular?
1: Yes, I've heard of them. I haven't read a lot of the literature on it myself, but I've heard a lot of it from some colleagues and fellow students at conferences. But it's essentially um, like their role as a warrior takes precedence over their biological gender. So their actions are more important as an identity or even as a gender identifier than what their actual biological gender is. And I think a lot of that ties into one of the things that Carol Clover even touched on is that performance and behavior was more important than necessarily your biological image. I mean, of course, clothing and what you wore did matter, but it's what you did with what you wore. So essentially in this case, women could wear the armor of a man and perform that role. Because they looked the image of the role, they could perform that role, and that's what mattered. And that essentially could be is what the identifier would be, more so than their feminineness so to speak
0: that's really fascinating thank you and i feel as though looking at ordinary objects you see the power of ordinary objects like you mentioned you know cloth that must have been very valuable and a very strong powerful object to use or to share
1: yeah and what's interesting about that point is that in medieval iceland the wool was actually used as a currency so the uh they would use a, a certain measurement called an L, and that would be used to judge value on certain things. So essentially, and there's a whole chapter about this, I think in Jenny Jokin's book, Old Norse Women, about how women essentially made the item that drove the Icelandic economy. So it really did have a lot of influence and power because that was one of Iceland's main products, so to speak. Um, so the fact that they, they were the ones that were making this item and it took on that importance, it shows that It may not be a sword, but it was a really important part of society.
0: Mm -hmm. So we have food and materials so far. Were there any other objects that were interesting during your research that you want to talk about?
1: For the most part, I only really looked at clothes and food. I didn't get too lost in any other examples, but when I was looking at women in particular, so it was largely just clothes and food. There was nothing that I can think of off the top of my head that's not one of those typical wealthy items like a arm ring, which was very popular among men to solidify alliances or in significant gifts. But again, that's a wealth I- object and I wanted to look at very mundane, particular, everyday type of objects. Um, there was, I haven't actually looked into it more, but a knife and a belt, they, that combination for some reason comes up a lot in saga literature there was a case in, I don't remember the saga off the top of my head, but it was given to someone as a gift and it symbolized the person who it used to belong to. So I haven't looked into see what that meaning is, but it's brought up a couple of times. But for the most part, I mostly just looked at clothes and food.
0: Mm-hmm. Those are the, the staples of humanity, really.
1: <laughs> they are.
0: <laughs> so looking at the three sagas, and I guess you've looked at some law codes, What were the most surprising finds you had when you were looking through all this evidence?
1: I think the most surprising thing, it wasn't necessarily surprising afterwards, but noticing the actual trend towards restricting women and taking a more polarized stance on what women could do in society. So it's easy to get really wrapped up in sagas like the the saga of the people of Laksadal, for example. Seeing women that powerful, that praised, and being that active, it's, those are really appealing, but then to watch as you try and go chronologically in the what we believe the sagas were written in, in the order, and seeing that, that image, which you could say is that golden ideal that a lot of us have about women in the Viking Age, and seeing it slowly change, as if it's slowly being drained of its life. And I think Njal's Saga is kind of in the middle of that, where you have women like Halgur doing those deeds, the same deeds that were praised in a different saga just 20 or so years before it, being contradicted and played down. And what's even more telling is that saga begins in the same region of Iceland that the saga of people of Láxadál takes place, and Halgard is actually related to some of the people featured in Laxdálas saga that were being praised. So she wasn't necessarily related to Ún the Deep-Minded, for example, but she was related to people who were connected to her. So the saga is literally taking the same examples and criticizing them. And unfortunately then, I wasn't expecting to go as far as the, the early 15th century when I was doing this, but when I looked at those sagas and saw that that image, which side had won out, and it was the, the side of Njal's saga, because when you get to Vigland saga, for example, I was su- very surprised to see the exact same example, essentially, of a woman donning men's clothing to do a good deed and seeing it more hostile. So the people around that character were just like uncomfortable with what she did, even though it was completely justifiable. And seeing that contrast over time really surprised me. And it wasn't something I was going into this looking for, but I was pretty amazed to find it.
0: So you're mentioning how communities changed over time. What were some of your theories perhaps on how this developed?
1: Well, for the most part, Iceland Before 1262 was an independent commonwealth, and they kept, for the most part, what we believe to be an old system of governance. So not your typical medieval hierarchy and medieval society. There was no king. It was just a general loose set of assemblies and chieftains. Power is very dispersed. But as the 13th century started to kick off, power started to solidify into fewer and fewer hands civil wars were breaking out, and they appealed to the Norwegian king to step in and bring in peace, and essentially it's that transition into the Norwegian crown, which was the Norwegian crown was essentially trying to be more of a European model with a central king, and I think that influenced Iceland as it changed politically, it also changed culturally a bit, and socially where the values that used to be upheld started to be signs of backwardness so to speak so at least my theory and my take was that iceland was trying to essentially modernize itself to the image in the rest of europe at the time and the concepts of gender that were more prevalent in continental europe for example started to take precedence over the older concepts of gender that were acceptable in iceland leading up to the civil wars and the downfall of the commonwealth And perhaps some of these authors blamed that kind of behavior for the reason that Iceland lost its independence or that their system fell apart. Because one of the main points in saga that the author talks a lot about, and anybody who reads it will either fall asleep during the passages or somehow get through them, but it's legal passages, pages and pages of their law and how their system works. And he's essentially using a woman who's stuck in her old ways to show that that's why, because we can't give up feuding we lost the country, so to speak. So at least my take on it is that authors started to see that as a problem and, um, because they wanted to become more like the rest of Europe, so to speak, as they were being integrated into a Norwegian system and perhaps blamed their old system for the failures that they were seeing at that time.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to say a huge thank you for being here. I appreciate all the time you spent researching your project and then being able to talk about it with us. Thank you so much, Stephen. This was really fun.
1: Thank you, it was.
0: Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, Stephen. That was fantastic. We definitely have to chat about more Norsevember things soon. The book recommendations are Njal's Saga and The Saga of the People of Laxerdal. You can also read Stephen's thesis online, at his academia.edu page, which will be in the show notes. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at historya. You can check out the website, historya.com. And if you have a moment to rate this podcast on your podcasting platform of choice, I would really appreciate it. Apparently, it helps people find me, so thank you. I'd also like to say thanks to my husband, Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends, the teachers who have inspired me throughout the years. Without you, I would not be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.